Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Yvonne Curtis. Yvonne trained in chemistry, taking a master's at Wellington University, and then on to teaching and later working as a lab technician. In 1982, she became involved with the New Zealand Futures Trust, and she remained involved with that organisation until its winding up in 2013. That's 30 years plus of sustaining a not-for-profit focused organisation. Her work there included writing articles, working as part of the executive, and serving on the board. Yvonne encourages people to take time to think about the possible long-term consequences of any present activity, and she enjoys the challenge of extending present knowledge and technology and seeking novel ways of using them in the future. Welcome to Future Pod, Yvonne. Hello. Lovely to be here, Peter. Yvonne, your story, how did you become a a member of the Futures and Foresight community? That part of my life only started when I turned 41 or thereabouts. <laughs> yes, you had a life before then and then you had a life with Futures, didn't you? That's it exactly, yes. And it... And it was an interesting time because it was not only discovering futures, but also discovering more about myself. Though that wasn't evident until just recently, just how different what I thought I was to what I perhaps was seen by other people. Yes. So the beginning of my life started in a very remote spot in New Zealand. Um, I was born in Gisborne, and I think... Worldwide, Gisborne is known because of the place it is in the history of New Zealand and New Zealand today, which is New Zealand Aotearoa, which echoes more clearly the New Zealand we are becoming. Yes. And Aotearoa, perhaps first now than New Zealand. And a little correction too, I will make, The university I went to, I'll do it right now while I remember, is actually I went to Victoria University of Wellington. And that is how those of us who are alumni of it mainly wish it to be remembered. (laughs) (laughs) So I was born in a very remote spot. It was between Whanatutu and Puha in a dead-end road leading out of Gisborne towards the Waiweka Gorge, leading northwest from Gisborne. And this is North Island for the people who know New Zealand geography? This is, oh, sorry, yes. This is, this is the east coast of the North Island. My parents were living with my father's mother, who had been widowed when my father was only in his teens, on a dairy farm, and it was a very basic house, and it was um, off the road. We had to ford two little streams to get to the road. One was both without bridges, actually, so it was a tractor journey to get out in the winter. I was an eldest of 
three children. So I started school in a Maori community school at Whoratutu, and then um, I was moved to another small school at Puha. It was Whoratutu, then went to Puha. But at that point, the family realised that the schooling and needed the helping to live, if you like, we needed to get into town to Gisborne, which was for us, of course, the big smoke. Yes. In town, we again lived with my mother's mother. And we first moved in, effectively, the family were in one room. There were five of us <laughs> at the time, living with no running hot water, an outdoor boil. We had to get wood, a copper to wash clothes. And we had gas, uh, hob, and an oven, but again, it was no running hot water in the house. Yeah. So Gisborne was coming into town and it was a good move for me. I settled into school very happily at Mangapapa School, uh, which was we walked to. I think it was, it seemed a long way, it was. It was two or three kilometres. So from there, I went to the intermediate school, the Gisborne Intermediate School, and you had two years at the intermediate, and then you went to the high school. Then we Gisborne grew. It was a time of um, great growth in New Zealand of population, and Gisborne grew quite swiftly. And suddenly, in the fifth form, when we that was three years into the secondary, that's when I was fourteen, fifteen. Um, we, they decided they needed to have two secondary schools and they made the decision to make the divide and make the one that was co-ed into a boys' school and we, and we would have a girls' school, girls high school. So my last two years was at Gisborne Girls High School. When I finished with college, I went through the top academic stream because in those days, as I say, we were streamed. Mm. But mm. by the time we were at the senior levels, there were only three or four of us in the class. Yeah. And at the end of the time, I managed to get a, a bursary, a B bursary. There was an A and a B bursary. And it also meant I was able to apply for and get a post-primary teacher's scholarship to be able to go to university because we certainly had not enough money to get me to university. I could have stayed in Gisborne and had a job of being in the in the um, as a cashier there, uh, but fortunately people persuaded me perhaps that I could do better than that, and I could go. <laughs> I perhaps should think about going to university. So that's why I applied for, or at least they helped me apply for a post primary teacher's bursary, which, as I say, I was awarded, and I chose Wellington because I didn't like I get car sick and bus sick, and to get to Auckland, there was not a train, there was a bus. And it seemed to me that Wellington was better because I could get there by train, and I was not train sick. So it was a 12-hour trip, 10 to 12-hour trip from Gisborne to Wellington in the train. In the early days, that was a steam train. So it did mean once I got to Wellington, I was very isolated from my family. I was did not have enough money to be able to go forth back and forth very often. It was back home for the holiday, it was Christmas holidays, 
But usually the shorter holidays, I would, once I think I'd get back sometimes, but otherwise I would stay in Wellington. Wellington and university turned out to be the right place for me. In the end, I fell into chemistry, and I think I'll say that. Where I ended up, my actual degree ended up not the one I started off planning to have. I loved maths passionately. I'd had a lot of support to uh, at school, and I had a wonderful maths teacher. I had a very and a good, um, some very good teachers, some excellent teachers. Also, in the last year, particularly, which is, I had a wonderful English teacher who introduced me to literature. Prior to that, my reading matter was pretty much the library books that my mother and grandmother got from the Cosmopolitan Club library, which was interesting. Mm. So I did, mm. did, did have my mind expanded before I left Gisborne into that there was some wonderful books to read. And so I started reading Emma and, and, and got into classics and understanding the beauty of literature and words. Yep. Two senior uh, uh, people in chemistry who were wonderful role models for me and did wonderful things and were also boarded with me at the Salvation Army Girls Hostel. So my friends who came from Gisborne, they they went to the ho- university hostels mainly. I was the only one who went to a into a Salvation Army. It was a that was a, that was again my time at university was different to just as my faith journey in those early years was different too but it's too long a story in many ways but put it this way I realize now and looking in hindsight my stories are always a slight exception to what was seen as the norm yep. Yep. and I did not in any case feel discriminated against or held back because I was a woman doing science and doing chemistry Good. And I just realized how fortunate I was. It's, for some reason, um, I, I just kept going. It, 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 I didn't know there was, any, there was any different. I didn't think of myself as being different. I just thought I was one of the people. And one of the, you know, that was it. Yes, you, you, so, certainly, you certainly had a childhood of being an iconoclast in the sense that you were not like other people, but you thought you were. That's it. You've got it in a nutshell. And that's, and that's what I've only just learned after I sent you that little uh, reflection I had from my friend Lou because I didn't realise just how different I was obviously taking life. I thought I was just one of the gang. I just thought I was one of the people. And then you begin to realise this is it. When you're learning and when you're stretching and when you're taking yourself forward, you don't see yourself as being any different from anybody else necessarily. Here in New Zealand, there was, the again, the serendipitous coming together of all these factors of the um, 72, um, beautiful, that whole new way of looking at cities and growth, the um, the whole thing of the uh, thing with Bob of Rome, you know, the... The limits to growth. But it was the essence of all of this. That was all happening, and, and I took to it like a duck to water. Mm. Um, and James Duncan, who was had been, it was part of forming, and I don't know all the stories because I was not part of the Commission for the Future as it was set up, but literally what you've got to say, from the time it was mooted, which was in actually about 19, 
1975, James did not wait for the government to make it official. He started gathering around him people who he thought would be useful to have to do the futuring that he wanted to do. So in 1977, that I'm trying to work out which which New Zealand government that would have been, but oh, it was the national government, Muldoon's Muldoon's government. So Muldoon's government established an architecture where there was a commission for the future, whose brief it was to go 50 years out, and then to feed at that least. to yeah, at, at least, and then to feed that information into the planning council. And that's so that started under Muldoon in '77, and and James Duncan was part of that process. Yes, but also started started to collect the people that he knew that he would need to actually run the commission. To run the commission because he was a, he was the futurist there. He had been reading around. You see, he had he had cottoned on to the uh, the Club of Rome and and this whole area, and also. He was part of the World Future Society. He was part of the World Future Society and also the World, uh, uh, the uh, Federation <laughs> WFSF, which I always get. The World, at that point, it was the World Future Studies Federation, but it became the World Future Studies Federation, which was very important. So they were two bodies that came out of the work that was done by the... Um, by BP and Shell, or by Shell actually, of how to use long-term or what they were calling futuring or looking around and understanding the long-term future to better manage the present. So that was happening at the government level. But where did the yeah. um, where did the Futures Trust fit into that? Well, this is it. What happened at the government level that we had the Act set up the two bodies. The futures, the Commission for the Future, in effect, was actually only one sentence. After seven years, by by 1981, um, what was being found by the Commission for the Future was beginning to look rather different to what Muldoon then wanted. (laughs) Because he was into the think big. He saw the think big. But again, this was it. He was thinking big without doing what I see now was the important bit of the of actually factoring people into the whole thing, focusing more on the economy. So the early signs coming out of this were that there were limits to what could be established, and there were limits to what Absolutely. to what economy and agriculture and population could support in New Zealand. That's all of us. You see, and again, George Preddy, who was one of the things, really got himself into trouble by actually t- men- dare- daring to suggest it was the the PFCs, whatever it is, you know, that caused the ozone hole, and therefore they needed to shut it down. Yeah. Uh, it, there's, there's a, I can tell you, uh, we had there was some absolutely brilliant stuff, I think, done here in New Zealand under the radar, and it was able to be done because it was under the radar. Yeah. So what the commission for the future never actually really was it never brought to f- to actually fruition. In effect, this is because what happened, you see, by at that point, when, just when they really were, and we they were, they were doing some beautiful work. Absolutely, if you if you see the work that they achieved in seven years, you'd be absolutely astounded. Yeah. The breadth of the work and what went what went on there. Yeah, I mean. It was a similar experience in Australia with our Commission for the Future that was established by Barry Jones. Yeah, but he came he came over and talked to us. 
that by that time we had had our fingers burnt because I'm saying using we there because what happened was at that point in 1981 that's just when Think Big was really going and they were going to spend all these this huge amount of money you know doing this wonderful economic thing with no thought to either the environment or the people and there was a kickback from a lot of people, so they decided they were kicking. The people from the commission were saying, starting to appear to say things that they didn't say. And the part of the commission's brief was that they were not allowed to influence the um, decision making. Yeah. And so, for various reasons, as you say, it's an interesting story. Who who stopped what or where? And again, like all these things, as we're finding now, there's no one story. There's a lot of stories. In, in one stroke of an act, one their sentence was wiped out of it, and the Commission for the Future was closed. On and and James knew it was coming, so he got together with the people who were involved, and they immediately set up so that by the time it was closed, they had set up an independent charitable trust right. to make sure it could not be taken over by anybody. It, it, it had to, it was they could keep the interest. You know, was trying to keep it true, pure, as it were, if you like, keep it true to its aims. And we still kept the same aims, the same aims that the commission had, i.e. we were for the public, with the public, it was consultation, it was done by the public, it was done as a group, it was not done by top-down, it was done together. And then you formally became involved with that body? I formally became involved with that body because one day James came walking past me when I was trying to make up my mind. In fact, I had just about made up my mind to start a PhD. Would I like to write for the, this new journal he was setting up? And he waved some cut, paper cuttings from, I think it was the, London, you know, the, the Financial Times and bits and pieces. And actually, if you look at the, my first article in the first copy of Future Times, you'll see it was, it was a, a, a research group looking at the actual standings of which were going to be whether Japan look great ranking the countries where their how their economics were going to look for the next ten years over the next ten twenty years, and it was an interesting piece, and I wrote it and they liked it and I kept on. That was the beginning, but like everything, when I go into something, I go into it deep. Thanks for that, Yvonne. So question two, Yvonne, is the one where I encourage the guests to talk about you know, a framework or a way of thinking that is, that is fundamental to how they have done their work. So what is it that you want to talk to the listeners about? I think it's understanding that in being part of a group, you are still individual. But on the, it, yep. depending on the... Each of your actions need to be always seen within a framework and a a context. You gather as much information as you can. You then take that aspect of you, which is you as a person, you go with it without most of the time needing to worry about where it might be leading you until it becomes obvious, and again, it's up to you. I think it's up to you, each of us individually, because of us being human, when this happens. There's no set. So in other words, I'm just saying, as far as I'm concerned, 
I go now with anything that comes my way as much as possible within the limits of myself and my physical and my physical hang-ups. As I listen to your story, you are a classic polymath in the sense that you are interested in it. That, you see, you were saying, yeah, the, there's an archetype, isn't there? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And you are interested in everything. And the way I would say in listening to you, Yvonne, that you are interested in things without necessarily needing to know why you're interested in them. You've got that. Yes. Yes. And then you find the use for it later. But if you but you don't start with the question, you start with the interest. Yes. 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 And also that also means I although I like to be law abiding and follow instructions and at times do, I also can think usually of interesting connections or other ways it can be done. I think you say I think you like saying you are law abiding. Oh, I am. No, no, no. I am, am. I am literally. I am terrified. That fright. The, the law frightens me. So going into court is a very frightening thing. Social law frightens you. Intellectual laws don't. That's it. You've got. I think that's probably right. That's it. <laughs> so social laws, and so that means I have very weird fears <laughs> in many ways. So the future didn't. The future hasn't, in a sense, effectively, the future has never frightened me. Right. Unless I've actually let it. What do you mean by if you let the future frighten you? Well, when I think I can't do something and it can't be done and also that I can't, yeah, and, and yeah, it's, that's the bit, but again, I've found that that's, it, that's actually dealing with myself in myself. Once I was able to turn that round again, so just I was getting, I was really missing. I realised I missed the people I was talking to around the world because I realised I've been in a world village for 30 years because I started the email list that I, you know, the WFSF email list. I've been part of that for 40 years. I was also part of the World Future Society as an email person for 40 years. I was also part of the two or three others that were around at the time that have gone now. So there was a group in Malta. There was also the lovely library in Copenhagen. I was never very good getting out of getting away from English. I've got no skills with language. Hmm. So part of your strategy for not being fearful of the future has always been to return to doing work with people. That's it. You've got it. And that's what I realised is what we actually, to give us the greatest security is to look to people. Mm. And this whole false security we say having money and an economy as being secure is a rush, is a myth. Yeah. Because they're all just human, human, it's in our imagination. We set the rules. So that's why a little bit I'm not law-abiding, but where I see there are times when they make sense in my mind, of course, and I realise this is only in my mind, you see, then I obey them and will obey them to the letter, mm. to the point that I did not and will not use youth stamps to repost. But the, the church did, which I always <laughs> found I found difficult. <laughs> the church didn't mind breaking the rules. No, because they felt it was a reasonable, you know, that was a reasonable give and take, as it were. All their rules, all their rules were to a to a higher authority. 
that's it. There's another thing. There you go. <laughs> so this is so I text. I want to be absolutely honest in my text, but they sometimes make it completely difficult. You can't be because you find you can't get the information at times. So paying my tax and dealing with money is always a disaster for me. I like to count it. I love to count it. I love doing this. But you can never, ever get it complete because you usually find somewhere along the line you've lost a bit of paper. Thanks, everyone. Our next question this is the one where I ask the guests to to really talk to the listeners about how they see the future emerging around them, both the futures that you see coming towards us, but also how you the the things you're particularly paying attention to. So, as you are in New Zealand at the moment, but you know, what are the futures that interest you? What are the futures that you think are coming our way? Um, you see. <laughs> Several, I'll do that in two. I'll do this in several layers because I think this again comes back to the. I think all futuring needs to be thought of. What matters is an actual context and actual con, um, a, a context and scale. So at the very personal level, I'm sitting now in a lovely place that, in the end, it took us five years to find that my husband and I found in Island Bay, looking out across a valley with houses and hills now, when we first came, that used to be covered would be at this time, not quite, no, it's not quite the right time, but first when we first came were actually golden gorse and burnt on a regular basis mm. that are now green in regenerating native forest with a little bit still. I can still see a little bit of gorse. But, and because, again, we found, now you don't want to take it all out because it actually makes a very good nursery for the regenerating native, but it is you would make make sure it's not too big a group, or else or else it all just burns sort of thing. I'm looking at the houses. I've got sparrows on my back porch because they've learnt that if they bring their bread onto our back porch, this is a safe place that they can eat it without too much interference from other big birds or cats. Because at the moment we haven't got a cat. I hear a tui singing in the thing, so that's at that level. Now, at my, in, at my community level, I'm in distress because this Island Bay community is a very old community here in Wellington. Was a, it grew up, it started off as a fishing, a fishing community because it has a very safe little harbour, as it were, for local small fishing boats. And it was the place where the um, Italian fishing boats and, the, and Greek seemed to have, this is their place. This is where they came in the very early days of settlement. So this is, you know, in the 1860s, 70s. And it was isolated from the centre because what is now the main road was a swamp and a wetland. And what was the main road is now is a broken street that goes along in five different pieces that you can't get, you know, that you've got to walk. You can't get go along in a car. And that used to be the main road to the beach. It became a favourite part when in the turn of the century, the, uh, I think about 1910, as I say, you need to look up the history, the, it got, the swamp got drained and what then was the valley became an easy way down to the beach. Mm. And it was one of the first that had 
and crammed down to it. So it was the, and it was the poor, if you like, it became the poor people's place to go to the beach at that point in many ways. I think, as I say, don't quote me, my history is you need to read it all up. So then, so at that level, now at this point, I have this in, in this way too. When I was part of the commission for the, at least not for the Futures Trust, I felt I could not take it go down to the personal level in anything I did because otherwise it, it did not make me believable as being disinterested at the top. So that's the other, that is another interesting dynamic that has to be thought about because that's where I see it's very, very unfortunate when leaders in some of the, these so-called balanced things and scientists, we've really got problems as scientists at the moment of understanding how do we keep our credibility as impartial critics yeah. of society yeah. as we are supposed to be. We need to stay at the abstract level rather than think of things at the personal level. That's well. You've got to do. You've got to do it all. We mustn't. We've, we've got to actually encompass a lot. Which that's it. This is it, and it's got bigger. This is it. It's got more complex now. So that's why my visions have had. To, my vision has had to expand and change. So what we what this is us learning is we're to grow up as human beings. Um, so that's it, the next one. And the next one, of course, is so I've been very much involved in an issue here and it didn't come out successfully us. We, we and unfortunately exposed in our way to for personally that, yes, I've got to say our justice system system is not as honest as we would like to, would to be. Although it might look honest from a distance, mm. when it comes down at the personal level, it isn't. And for many, and again, you've got to say this is personal, and that's why again I've got to be—I want to be very careful here, so I can say I know what it feels like, and I now have had to change my. And I was one who said that I felt we had the best, best, yes, justice system, and it was, it or could have been, or what? Well, anyway, whatever. It was judged, so that's it. You can't judge. If you want to be a futurist at that level, you don't bring judgment in. Mm. So what do I say? I think you have to be the person you need to be. You've got to be honest with yourself, but then it's up to you how you actually use your talents and how, but again, this is determined by what, things beyond your control, but it's in how you react to them. So that's why in a family, the family will, as a family unit, will be exposed to all the same things, but they will all come out differently. So just it's, it's, it really is getting to the point that it's very difficult. We've got to rethink, and that's why I'm finding it very interesting, the WF, and I'm really encouraged that I'll dip back. You see, I dipped out of the international stuff because I thought once the commission – oh, sorry, I should finish that. The, um, because the Futures Trust has been able to, I think, hold the values that the Commission for the Future had and over the years has carried on the role, but we had to do it under the radar informally, not to be able to do it the way we wanted to do it. Yep. But we've also, if we go with Marilyn Waring, and I do go with her, we are we have actually now narrowed what we're actually measuring. We are not expanding what we're measuring as we get better methods of measuring. We're narrowing what we're measuring rather than expanding what we're measuring. So to as far as I'm concerned now, technology at the moment is not helping us. 
in, in many, many ways because it is now getting beyond, we're actually increasingly in uh, the divide. And this is, and what is the most important part, if we are going to survive as a species, it's ourselves we've got to look to to survive. We're the only ones who can help us to survive. And that means we need to look inwardly honestly and outwardly honestly. And how we learn how to do that is quite a difficult thing. got a question for uh, the one of communication it's the question where I ask the guest how do you explain what you do and why you do it to people who don't necessarily understand what it is you do yes and that's the crunch is one of the big crunches is communication that we as human beings are still working through and will be a work in progress for as long as we're human beings. And this is why in the end I find I'm happiest when I actually don't think I'm finding an answer, when I'm trying to find what are the questions to ask. Mm. Yeah, we're not yeah, we don't find answers, we search for questions. We search for questions because we need to. Because this is, because again, we're never going to know. And this is it. It's actually learning how can we be uncomfortable in the unknown. Yeah. Because, it, and again, this is where those Maslow, I brought back to those um, those levels of, of actually, as we grow and to become a, what he says, a, a complete person. Self actualized. And again, like all my theories, like all theories, I always have a but for any theory. <laughs> Because that's what I'm beginning to realize. It's only a theory. That's it is right. only a theory. It is a human-made theory. And it's only humans make theories. Yeah, all theories are wrong. Some theories are useful. That's it. But we need those theories before you can actually take action that is going to necessarily help or will help you understand what are the consequences of that act. Yeah. And you also are not going to always know all the consequences. Well, you can't. You can't wait. A little bit like I'm going into a blog now. I am learning how to blog again. I mean, as I say, I I could do on the computer 20 years ago what I now can't do on the computer. I actually set up a website. I had an operating website 20 years ago that did what I wanted, but I can't do it now because the levels, how they've changed it all, I don't understand. So I'm understanding now I've got to accept, again, I did it with help, though, of course. I had, this isn't, I was never on my own. I always did it with help. And this is the trouble. I can only be responsible for myself, but I've also got to accept that there are times when I am perhaps the only one who has to take and have the courage to say things that are not going to be liked. And I love to be loved, and I love to be, and I really fear being against the law and my sister's even more fearful that I will go to prison and don't do it, <laughs> Yvonne. And, and I realise I'm not sure if push comes to shove and I won't know until that instant happens just what I will do. All I can say so far, I've been really grateful to feel I have done, walked through, knowing that there is what, what I do will cause pain to some and not to others, will cause pain to me 
and at times and not at other times, but this is being alive because it's only in knowing pain that you can know not pain, as it were. So that it's this whole understanding that I've come, where I've come to, and this is the bit I'll say, is the core is, yes, and it's Victor that actually made me think about this carefully, is that, yes, at the very, very first, once we became aware that we were one as a unit, as a human unit, then there automatically has to be another or else there was no need to define a one. But having defined the one, the other is just as important as the one or else there is no meaning to it. The other defines the one. That's it. So you, so again, and you, and also you need not keep yourself only defined to binary thinking. You can expand that, and that's what we've got to actually learn to do in a way that is sense is a way that makes sense. So the, and, and you see a little bit after all it, when the teaching, if you like, Christian teaching does that by the, giving the idea of God being three persons in one. That whole Trinity idea is a is a beginning of this beginning to understand that new Trinity is a molecule. And again, chemistry tells you, you realize chemistry and physics are excellent things to help you get the modeling, but that doesn't mean that doesn't put the people into it. That doesn't do the fuzzy bits of it. So to turn it from a model, a mechanical model, into something that's alive, you've then got to take a completely different dimension. And I'm a little bit of that is I think our sixth sense, we've got a hint of it in what we're calling sixth sense now. This will only be the beginning. But when we can actually see the sixth, our sixth sense in the same way as we see our five we already list, then I think we will be taking a big step forward in understanding ourselves as humans and possibly being able to use now the tools that we have that have turned us into the gods of the Romans that we used to call, well, even the gods of the Romans, the gods of the, gods of the, the previous generations. We are now, we are able to bring thunder and lightning, but as we're finding, we are limited, aren't we? We don't, if we don't know our limits, then we can't well, do it the, safely. The Romans also, and the Greeks understood that along with godlike powers, there is a thing called hubris. That's it. And that's, I think, is where we've actually missed out because we've, we've been focusing very much on our rights and not on our responsibilities. And I know there's a group who've been looking hard and trying to work out what are our responsibilities that go with the Right, and the two need to go together and be, you know, and be seen equally. Just as so does the, so does the light and the dark. It's they're all, and and as, as and I think I said to you the other day, and I'll use this now. My new framing of my limits of when I am doing futuring, are uh, that the negative and positive infinity are one and the same, and it encompasses. And what's inside that is I'm in the centre of it. You've become a Taoist, probably. I know it won't be new. It won't be new because this is what we knew when we first became conscious and started developing how do we work together to work to, together, as it were, as a unit, as individuals, but as a unit. Thanks, Yvonne. Let's go to the final question, and I'm going to ask you to talk about a phrase that you just used, and possibly you might go back to what you think the Futures Trust was really about. But the thing you said was, how do we, 
how do we grow up as human beings to be both inwardly honest and outwardly honest? Yeah, that's a big one, isn't it? And, and, and at this point, I'm learning. I think we all are. And we're learning now that we're needing to learn to do it when we didn't have just that. Learning to do it in, again, a state of, when we're in a state of scarcity, our, for some, you'll see our best features come out, what we call our best features come out, because that we find we need to use our best features if we're going to actually survive. Mm. Once we have a, a, more than enough, we get a bit slack on some of those virtues. Yeah. Because the other interesting thing is every virtue is a vice. It depends on when and how it's the context. That's what I'm saying. Everything is the same. It's actually the same thing we're talking about in human terms of what is living and what is human, being human in the living, being human in the living entity, in the all the different ways of living, from that little first little spark, that virus. How are we living? It, it, as much as a you know the virus is, is those viruses are living just as much as we are. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, that if if people are put into distress, and we see this in in emergencies generally, people are better human beings when they're in difficult situations because apart from personally surviving, they will reach out to help others survive. That's it. That's it. And then as we become, as we believe we are less needing of peop, other people, or people don't need us, we tend to become more selfish. That's it. Yep. That's where I think is it, it's it now. Um, so, but again, if we're going to, I think we have got the capacity, if we're going to go beyond ourselves, I think we can. I do think in terms of our, our maturity of understanding what we are capable of, we are still in our, I think we have shifted maybe a year in our late teens. As a, as a human species. Mm. You did say that, and I just want to bring you back to this, that the Futures Trust had its own ethic as to what made good futures work. Do you want to just talk a little bit more about what you believe that ethic is for doing that good futures work? Well, we, everybody who came to us came to us of their own volition. It was a choice. So we, we never... Uh, and anything we did was always a, a very carefully. And when it did come into contract, when we needed to work as it were commercially, it was always a very tight little package so that you knew, um, uh, you know, you could always cut it off at one point when it seems. So anything we said, we also expected it to be open to everybody else to be able to use. And if you look, we never actually, we never pleaded for donations. We never begged, we never Actually, this is it. we're now begging for donations, and this is really we're, 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 we've actually we've at the moment we are in we, we as a species we are in strife. So that's what I see is that we've got to really recognise that people's passion matters, but also we still got to remember that we've got to bridle. We do have to learn self. How do we bridle our own passions and understand when you know we've got to look remember that we're part of a, another new whole, as it were that needs to in some way work as a whole. And I'm not sure how to say that. I have to keep changing the image I'm using because I realise 
it, we don't need to all line up in the one way. It's quite a good way, but no, we just need to feel there's something there that we want to hold as a, with a bit of a, a, a membrane around us to make us feel that it's family and family that we feel safe in. And it is that safety little bit, but not be at the cost of others without doing harms to others, turning that round. So the, all these golden rules, I come back to what we see as the golden rules from you know that that wisdom. What are the things? And I'm using gold. Why use gold? Because that just happens to be the one, the, you know, the image that re resonates for me. But there'll be other images. Whatever's precious to you. So these, you see, the words are not adequate at the moment. We begin. Words are now no longer any use to us very much. And images are difficult as too, because unless you understand the image, you, you, the image means nothing to you. So we, we, we're really in communication at the moment is one of the biggest things, biggest struggles we're going to have. It's interesting, uh, Zia Sada, uh, who works in what he calls post-normal futures, and he has a group of uh, yes. uh, futurists around him. And so they're talking about that, you know, we're now living in post-normal futures times, which are very chaotic uh, and very, very emergent. And one of the things that Zia said in his interview is useful, in fact, more than useful, essential to navigate your way through post-normal times is to use virtues to guide your actions. Yes, but you've got to decide who decides which and what virtues. Yes. That's an even more important question. And that's where I think it needs to be the unit that you are actually deciding the virtues for. If it's only for yourself, then it's you. If it's for a community, then that community must decide its virtues. Mm. And if we then take it the next step, I think for humans, we've got to package it a little bit. I mean, I'm also aware that you talked about and you used the example of how our justice system is not just because I'm hearing in there that with privilege comes responsibility. That's it. If you're benefiting from the system, then you've got to ask the question, why am I benefiting and is everybody benefiting? But you see, what you've got to remember, we are human. And then you, and particularly in New Zealand, in the small country we are, the, the corruption is actually the fact that almost, you might say, is nepotism, because again, all seen as nepotism. But it has to be, because we are so few. You do know everybody, pretty much. <laughs> Not completely, but you know somebody who knows somebody. Mm. And that's a little bit of where, and at times, again, where does your moral, you see, this is it, it's this whole it's a negotiated position. The virtues actually have to be negotiated, continually be negotiated. What is a virtue? Where is it a virtue? And why is it a virtue? And also, that's why a little bit I see we've really got to stop pushing people forward as champions. No, that leads to war. And so does competition always leads to war, but it also is useful in, different, in a different way at a different place when it's understood its limitations. Mm. And the need for the balances to make sure that it is actually helping people search for new things or enabling new things to happen. This conversation, as I say, I, I don't know, it's very, very hard at the moment for me to find the words. That's why I want to say, what I want to do, I just want to put a blog together that I'll be putting other people's words. They won't be my words. It'll be, it'll be, it'll be again like I did with the Futures Trust. 
with, we'll be putting the stuff out there. It'll be for people to come and find it. I'm not going to twist arms to find it. And I will agree, it's for New Zealand. And that's the other thing, because that's who where I am. I am I am a me. I am here in Wellington. I am here in New Zealand now. And for me to live my everyday life, the most important thing is I have most wonderful neighbours around me who supported me. I have not feared, felt anxious during COVID-19 because I've had the most wonderful neighbours and family who have cared for me in, in a way that, that I really, really value. And I have tried to do the same where I can for those others because that's, that's basically where my faith, and that's the other bit, faith needs to be in here. That's why I think anything we do for humans must have two sets. I think we almost need two sets of valuing or how to measure things. And, and, and you know, sort and try and make them, how do we get them together? That's, that is the other thing. How do we put them together? And I think each of us, we need to puddle through it, muddle through it, talk it through so nothing is wasted, just as there is no such thing as waste in nature. They are all resources. It just depends on our, we frame, we use those words. Nature does not use those words. Thanks, Yvonne. I might close it off at that point. Thanks for taking some time out to spend some time with the FuturePod community. It has been a real pleasure and a privilege, and I probably, I hope it'll be some help. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.